with snow and ice and rain and power outages and all the rest. And, you know, during this time, we're busy caring for what the world would call our greatest earthly investment, which is, what do they say? Your house, right? You got to wrap those pipes, care for the gutters, do all that sort of stuff. But this morning, we're going to look in God's Word for how to care for our greatest eternal investment, our soul. And the souls of those whom God has given us the privilege to care for. You see, God is building for himself a kingdom of souls, saved by his grace, set apart for his glory, to love him and enjoy him forever. And God calls us to invest in his kingdom with everything we have and everything we are every single day. Now, the bad news is that in and of ourselves, we don't actually have anything to contribute to this, this building project, if you will. You see, God's kingdom is built from 100% pure righteousness, and we have none of that on our own. Romans 3 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. But there's good news that follows that, isn't there? There's good news that even though none of us has this in and of ourselves through the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, he has accomplished, given what we had none of. He both fulfilled God's righteous standard and satisfied God's holy justice. And now all who confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. We become recipients of this righteousness, children adopted into his family, and citizens of his kingdom, citizens of the kingdom that he is building. In light of this truth, this gospel, this good news, where I'd like to start with us this morning is, what do we do? What do we do as kingdom citizens? If God has drafted us and called us and claimed us, we're his child, we're his people, we're citizens in his kingdom, what are we to do? Well, this might sound like an introduction to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, but it's uh, built off of an earlier revelation that was given for our instruction. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, as you're turning or tapping and scrolling or whatever you do, I'd like to just briefly address one modern criticism just for the sake of clarity. Uh, some would say, why would you use the Old Testament? I mean, isn't, it, isn't that old news? Uh, haven't we really been unleashed from that part of the Bible? Aren't the first 39 books of this Bible, aren't they expired? No, they're not expired. In fact, they're inspired and eternal. And they always will be. As Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God, that is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. It is not expired. It is, in fact, inspired. Jesus even said the Old Testament bears witness about him. And so we need to remember that the Old Testament is completely valid and legitimate for us to hold to every single day. To say it another way, the gospel does not begin in Matthew 1.1. The gospel begins in Genesis 1.1. Okay, back to our context for today. You're in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The year is 1405 BC, and the people of Israel, are gathered, Israel they're gathered in Moab, and they're ready to cross over the Jordan from the, west, from the east to the west to receive the promise that God made 40 years early to them when, they, when he delivered them out of Egypt. 
Moses at this time is in his last days due to his rebellion. He will not be going into the land with them. But he gives them a series of speeches. And these series of speeches were captured together and have become the book of Deuteronomy. In these speeches, he's preparing the people to go across and receive the land. And he's preparing them with three specific objectives. First, he wants them to know about a great confession they must have for entering into relationship with God. He also wants them to know about the great commandment necessary for cultivating this relationship. And finally, a great commission for how to perpetuate the relationship that they have with their God. Doesn't sound like this has been expired. Absolutely not. Well, for context's sake, let's start in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 6, pick it up in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, get this, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now stop there before we get to today's passage. As you can see, Moses is pleading with them, pleading with the people to listen closely and hear what he has to say, this word from the Lord. And as he's pleading with them, he says, verses 2 and 3, that you may fear the Lord, and that in fearing the Lord, it will go well with you. In other words, Moses is teaching them how to be faithful, both as kingdom citizens and kingdom builders. And so we come to verse 4, built on that foundation, Moses pleading with them, and then he gives them this great commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This verse is the beginning of what's known as the Shema. The Shema Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, which is the first word in this verse. In other words, God wants us to pay close attention. And the word here doesn't just mean listen to what I'm saying. He says hear with an intent to heed this instruction. You see, every time God reveals himself, it demands a response. But when God says, listen up, look at me, and he grabs you by the cheeks, like we would our child, listen to what I'm about to tell you, we need to pay extra close attention. So I need to ask, as we enter into God's words this morning, Are you ready to hear God's word? And by hearing, that is, are you ready to heed God's instruction? Again, verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Here's our first point for today. To be a faithful kingdom citizen, you must be exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is. You must be exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is. Who is the one true God? He is the Lord. Specifically here, the reference is to Yahweh, the personal covenant-making, promise-keeping God who created all things. 
His word means, his name means I am, the self-existent one. This is Yahweh, the Lord, the one who always has been and always will be. He created the heavens and the earth and he created you. He is the one our ancestors rebelled against in the garden. He is the one who made the promise of a coming Savior. He is the one who redeems his people today. He is the one who we will stand before on judgment day. Yahweh, the Lord, is our God. The one true living and eternal God of our salvation. And by this name he has chosen to be known. It is by this name that he has chosen to save his people. In fact, in Joel chapter 2, he says... Whoever will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved. Interesting to note that Paul in chapter 10 of Romans quotes that same verse from Joel, showing that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved, but the referent is to Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is the one true God. In Deuteronomy 6.4, God calls and requires his kingdom, his people, to be exclusively committed to worshiping him. And this requirement stands true for us today. This has not expired. So what does that mean? To start, it means that we must make a confession. To confess means that we say the same thing, right? We say the same thing. That's confession. So here, God wants us to confess to him the same thing that he reveals about himself to us. And we do this in two ways. First, according to this verse, first, He is our God, meaning he has ownership of his people. Secondly, he is one, speaking speaking of the unity of himself. Let's take those one at a time. As to his ownership of his people, this means that we affirm that he is our God. And he is our only God. We must not allow any competing gods, little g, of this world to take away our lives, our worship, our attention. He is Lord of all or not Lord at all. You've heard that before. Not that we need to affirm him to make him sovereign. He's sovereign regardless, but he needs to rule our entire life. He doesn't want half-hearted commitments and phony affection or divided hearts. God wants exclusive commitment, wholehearted worship. I was reminded of the words that Al Mohler shared a few years ago. We have become a nation of religious tourists and spiritual collectors. We have become a nation of religious tourists and spiritual collectors. We have no lasting commitments and only temporary interests and hobbies. To maybe update it a little bit and make it more modern language, too often American Christianity has become cotton candy Christianity, bubblegum theology, and Red Bull worship. We're distracted constantly. We like to eat things that dissolve in our mouth, chew on the doctrines of Scripture, and spit them out later. Going through the New City Catechism is fantastic. Reminding yourselves of those truths that are not just for observation or affirmation, but implementation into your life. The Lord, our God, demands more from us and desires more for us. That's why he gives us these good commands. Yahweh requires that we have exclusive commitment to him, and then he gives us what he can exclusively provide. That is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is why Moses, get this, 35 times in chapters 5 through 8 of Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord is our God. The Lord is your God. 
I think he's making a point. There's an ownership here. God owns his people, and we must live in such a way that his ownership is manifest, is represented, is clear. Because of this, we must never allow anyone or anything to steal our worship of the one true living God. You might recall in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan came to Jesus, right? And he took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I'll give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus responded and said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus, quoting from this same chapter, verse 13 specifically. Exclusive worship, only serving the Lord our God. But the point is this, don't let Satan fool you by thinking he can provide something that only God can provide. Salvation and satisfaction in him for all eternity. But exclusive worship also means that we confess his oneness, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, not only is Yahweh our God and the only true God, Yahweh is one, speaking of his unity. This is the statement or the great statement of monotheism. Mono meaning one and theism referring to deity. There is only one God, capital G, one God. God says of himself in Isaiah chapter 45, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Five times. <laughs> God is making clear that he is the only God, and he is one. Now, in case you're wondering about God's oneness and the, the unity of his essence in that oneness and how it corresponds with the doctrine of the Trinity. I'll just take a moment and mention this. I'm sure you've gone through it through the New City Catechism um, in part. But the word here when he says, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, the word one there does not exclude a possibility of plurality of persons. It's what's called a compound singular. So it actually allows for it in the language. We had the same thing spoken in Genesis 2.24. The man and woman became one, right? So they are one, even though they're two people. Second, there's a beautiful correlation between what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Matthew 28. The Lord our God is one, one God in essence. And then we read in Matthew chapter 28, Go therefore and make disciples and baptize them in the name, singular, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have three persons, one God. Third, Jesus had no problem quoting from, affirming, and stating this same reality. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And while at the same time declaring his own deity, as well as the deity of the Holy Spirit. We see a wonderful, consistent clarity in Scripture about the oneness of God in essence and yet being three persons. This is unique to Christianity and it holds true to what the Bible clearly reveals. But it starts here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now having said all that, and that is a lot, how does this apply to your life? Okay, I see that and I can affirm that, but what does this mean for me today? How does the fact that he is my God and he is one, what, how does this impact my life, my decision-making, my relationships, my moment-by-moment -moment living? Well, honestly, it impacts everything. 
It impacts every part of who you are. It really is the centerpiece of the gospel. It's, it's the basis for your moral discernment. It really is the lens of your worldview. This is how things ought to be seen. We must confess this to be true and live accordingly. When you're tempted today to watch something offensive, when you enter into a conversation that goes down the wrong path and you know it shouldn't go there, when the lusts of your own flesh rise up for something that you know you should not partake in or whatever, you must say to yourself, maybe even out loud, the Lord is my God. I am his. He is one. This declaration reminds us of who he is and who we are in him. It's been said that every decision is an act of worship. And in light of that, every decision becomes an opportunity to affirm this reality. Affirm the reality that the Lord, he is our God. He owns us. Now, as I mentioned earlier, every time God reveals himself, it demands a response. And so as we read verse 4, we say, well, God is revealing who he is. How ought we to respond? Well, thankfully, the scriptures are very instructive and clear. They kind of take us by the hand sometimes and walk us through. Verse 5 tells us how we should respond to the reality of verse 4. Verse 5 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I love that we read that this morning in the New City Catechism. That was great. I thought, how appropriate you're going through at the same time that you're going to now study where it came from. Love the Lord your God, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Verse 5 is known as the first and the greatest commandment. That's not my opinion. Those are Jesus' words. In Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, when they came up and said, Jesus, what is the first? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes this verse. So we must not only be exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is, but secondly, verse 5, you must be completely devoted to loving God with all you are. You must be completely devoted to loving God with all you are. If, if you're wondering, how do I do that? The God of all creation, the redeemer of my soul, how do, how do I worship him rightly, appropriately, he tells us right here. It's beautiful. With all of your heart. With all of your heart. And in the Hebrew understanding and in English understanding, we commonly get it today. That's not speaking of the blood, blood pumping organ in our chest, right? Quite the contrary. The, the heart is mentioned here as a reference to the seat of the mind or the intellect. The place where emotions are generated. The, places, the place where decision making takes place. Your heart encompasses all of those things. So to be wholly devoted to loving God with all your heart is to employ the fullness of your consciousness, your mind, your will, your emotions, your volition, so that they are actively and intentionally thinking and deciding and doing that which pleases God above all else. Loving God with all your heart seeks to please God above anything else. We lay aside selfish ambition to do and, and be what, this, what pleases the Savior. This means that doing His will is our greatest joy. Living righteously is more satisfying than fleshly pursuits. 
You find more joy in God's revelation than in man-made entertainment. Your desires and your affections are, are for God and his word. Love God with all your heart. But also love God with all your soul. The soul refers to one's entire being, literally your essence. Your being is to be inseparable from God's ownership of you. You don't just have a relationship with him. You are in him. Paul writes in Colossians 3, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. He goes on to say, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see how your identity in Christ determines your activity as a Christian. Now, did you catch that? If you're still pursuing fleshly lusts and earthly stuff, then you're practicing what Colossians says is idolatry, making a god of the things of this world, and they are false gods. Loving God with all your heart and loving God with all your soul means that you must die to yourself and live for the one who redeemed you. But of course, there's one more, isn't there? We must also love God with all of our might. Now, we hear the word might and we think strength. Often we think physical strength, but really it encompasses so much more than that. It's not just physical strength, it's actually your stuff. Things beyond just your uh, bodily power, it has to do with all of your influence, your clothes, your money, your houses, your influence, your authority, everything. That's what encompasses your might. Love God with all your might. So God commands that all of us love him generously and sacrificially for his purposes and ends with all of our might. And the scriptures ask us, what do you have that you have not received from God? He gave it. And he desires you to use it and employ it for his good, good purposes. To love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might means that you're not striving to make your own claim on something, your own position, your own preference to be first. Instead, you are daily investing in God's reputation faithfully building a kingdom that will outlast and outshine you. It means you're willing to humbly and with joy and satisfaction serve your spouse. Loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind means that you're laboring to see your children become less like you and more like Jesus. It means that you're sacrificially giving of your own self, your own stature, your own stuff for his kingdom purposes. It means that you're wholly devoted to loving God in this location, in your situation, in this generation. But not just this generation. And that leads us to our next point. Verses 6 through 9. To be a faithful kingdom citizen, you must be exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is. You must be wholly devoted to loving God with all that you are. And thirdly, you must be diligently participating in spiritual formation. Faithful kingdom citizens live this way. Let's pick it up in verse 6. 
These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Wow. We need to participate in this process of spiritual formation. Do you realize that everyone is being formed spiritually every day? Every one of us. In fact, some are being made into the image of God's Son, and some are being more and more crafted into the likeness of this world. But we're all being formed and developed. You won't leave church today, or you will leave church today, different than you arrived. Guaranteed. You see, every decision, every relationship, every observation, every experience is making an impression on your mind, on your heart, on your life. There's influence that comes your direction. And God calls us to diligently be participating in this process of being formed spiritually. Now, listen to this. We do this by discerning and determining the content of our daily spiritual diet. We have to be rightly discerning and rightly determining the content of our daily spiritual diet. Look back at verse 6. These words that I command you today. These words. These words. The content God has given for your spiritual formation is the word of God. For Israel on that day, these words meant at least the Shema, probably Deuteronomy, but maybe even the complete Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. In other words, all the scripture that God had revealed at that time. For us today, to hear and obey God's word, to participate in this, it is all of the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3 again, all scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and is profitable for you. The word of God is the prescribed textbook of spiritual formation for God's people. And please hear this. Verse 6 says, These words shall be on your, 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 your heart. So direct. As you're participating in the spiritual formation process, before you care for others, you must be caring for your own soul. These words must be on your heart. Perpetuating the faith begins with your own heart that then pours in to others. You must be saturating your own life, your own heart, with God's word constantly. Personal devotions, memorization, meditation, prayer, conversations with others, casual reading, movies, music, all of it. It's all making an impact on you. Are you discerning rightly? Are you determining rightly? Are you processing rightly so that it's profitable for your formation in such a way that you're becoming more like Jesus and less like the world? That the world takes note of the peace and joy and righteousness you have in the Holy Spirit. There's a regular, meaty, healthy, high in calorie diet that God is recommending to us. You're not going to find that advice anywhere else. Get the meaty good stuff and eat so much of it that you don't get done chewing on it all day. Take on God's word constantly and let your whole heart, soul, and might be wrapped up in it. Be diligently participating in this process of spiritual formation. 
I'd like to ask you a quick question. Who do you think is the most concerned about and active in your spiritual formation? When you think my life, who's the most concerned about my spiritual formation and who's the most active one involved in my spiritual formation? And I'll answer for you. God, almost oh, certainly. That God is the most intimately active and sovereignly caring for your soul. Absolutely. And what about your spouse? Like it or not, they are forming you, and God means it for your good, whether they're a believer or not. Your parents, if they're believers, most certainly they're concerned. If they're not believers, they're still influential. How about your peers? Do they positively or negatively influence your spiritual formation? How about Satan? Do you think he's concerned about your spiritual formation? Do you think he's trying to influence your spiritual formation? Absolutely. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour firing darts. Now, he can only be in one place at a time, but he's ruling and reigning over a system in this world that's arranging a coordinated attack to distract you, to discourage you. Now, having said all that, how about you? How, how much are you concerned and active in your own spiritual formation? I don't expect that your diligence and sacrifice would be above God's. It never will be. But are you outworking Satan for your spiritual growth? Are you working on your own spiritual formation in such a way that you are actively and intentionally doing that which grows you to be more like Jesus? Because that's God's plan for you. In fact, while you're in Deuteronomy, look over to chapter 5 really quick. As the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue was revealed, the people hear the Ten Commandments, and in, in verse 27, right at the end of verse 27, they say, we will hear and we will do it. Okay, they give this kind of affirmation, this ratification, this, this re-ratification, if you will, of yes, that's God's law, we will do it. Now look at God's reply to their affirmation, verse 29. God says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Don't you love that? God is excited about you being excited about him loving you. That is awesome. God loves for us to say, yes, I hear it and I'll do it. And God knows we can't. But God provides a Savior, and God provides a way, and so he works in us and through us for his glory. This is awesome. You know what it's called when somebody desires and provides for that which is best for you? When somebody desires and provides for your greatest good? It's called love. God loves you. God loves you and he knows how to take care of his children. His commands are good. His instructions are profitable. So loved ones, God has graciously given us everything we need for salvation and for sanctification. We need to be diligently participating 
in this process. That's what he calls us to. But let's pick it up in verse 7. We are diligently about this work of spiritual formation in our own heart. And when you got a second or two, go ahead and teach your kids as well. No, I say that facetiously because we know that's a full-time job. In fact, teaching our kids is often the way God reminds us that he's still teaching us. We've got a lot to learn. I, w- I would guess that I'm not the only parent who has, who has prayed, Dear God, I am not ready for this level of sanctification. If you would just make them obey, that would be awesome. At least until we get out of church. Then I will really respond godly. As soon as we get in the van and we're on our way, I will respond wonderfully and Christ-like. God knows where to meet us where we're at. And he calls us to do this. Teach them diligently. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Are you even trying? Are you even aiming? God says, go this direction. I'll take care of the fruit You take care of the faithfulness. Just aim that direction. Well, regardless of your readiness, God says, teach them diligently. Teach them diligently. This is a great privilege, but it's also a great command. It's a great privilege because God has given into our care, those of us who are parents, the souls of the next generation. That's that's amazing. That's frightening. You might find it interesting to note that the word for teach there in verse 7 communicates, it's the Hebrew word shanan, and it means to impress or to engrave, or I like this, um, leave an imprint by repetitive action. That sounds like parenting, doesn't it? One translation even says it this way, drill it into your children. Well, that's saying it how it is. All of these communicate one idea. If you desire your children to know God, you must be busy about this work. Now, don't get me wrong. Their salvation is in the hands of the Lord. But the Lord's hands are using your hands to reach your, his children, <laughs> your children. And so God wants us to be faithful in this work of reaching our kids. And if we don't, if we forsake this platform, we are not being faithful. Francis Schaeffer said this, a little over 50 years ago. If we do not make clear by word and practice our position for truth as truth and against false doctrine, we are building a wall between the next generation and the gospel. Forsaking your duty, your duty to teach your children God's word is building a wall. But we not only teach them God's word, we live a life that reflects it. J.C. Ryle said it this way, and he always has a way of piercing us with good conviction. Strive to be a living example of Christ. Be an example of reverence for the Word of God. You are their model picture, and they will copy what you are. Your reasoning, your lecturing, your wise commands, and your good advice, all this, they may not understand, but they understand your life. That's convicting, because that's true. They see everything that we teach them, and then they watch our life and say, well, are you doing it? Or they're watching us just to say, well, what does that look like in real life? You told me to do this and not do this, and so they watch us to see how it actually looks. Now, let's take a look at this. Diligently participating means that we talk of them, verse 7, right? We talk of these things. Now, that might sound simple, and it really is that simple. 
Talk of these things with your kids and with your grandkids. Read with them, pray with them, share your insights, share your testimony, share your faith with them. I love the story in Acts chapter 8. Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch looks at him and says, can you explain this scripture to me? And in verse 35 of Acts chapter 8, we read, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scriptures preached Jesus to him. Can it be that simple? Yes. Parents, grandparents, open your mouth. Starting from the scriptures, preach Jesus. Sometimes it really is that simple. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of prayer. But it's not as hard as we often make it out to be. When should we do this? Right now. Where should we do this? Everywhere. You see, in verse 7, I love this about God's word. God understands that our lives are busy. And so he gives us instruction for diligently participating with spiritual formation while life is in motion, <laughs> right? While life is in motion, as you are living, also be doing spiritual formation for the busy person. As you lie down, as you rise up, as you're walking, everywhere you go, this implies that you need to be there. You need to be present. We're often very active, but you also need to be there. You need to be present. Quality time is often found, well, most found. I should say quality time is most found in quantity of time. We have to be with those who we seek to form and with them intentionally. You're the only mom they have. Be the mother they need. You're the only dad they have. Be the dad they need. Okay, so they have several grandparents maybe, but be the one that they need. Be the one that they love. Be the one that pours into them diligently. As for verses 8 and 9 of this section, we're reminded to bind them around our hands and, our, and between our eyes and not to be taken exactly literally when God, God wasn't telling the people of Israel to actually write them in little boxes and write them on their forearms and put them between their eyes, even though that's actually what they did a lot of the time. However, our commitment and our devotion to the Lord should be just as evident as if we did. We live a life and we speak those things and we hold ourselves in such a way that it is just as evident as if we were writing God's word on our hands and between our eyes. And we write it on our doorposts and on our gates so that our community as well might know that we serve the Lord and him alone will we serve and worship. Every part of our life is to reflect our identity in Christ and our activity for Christ so that his name might be made great. So we evaluate ourselves and we say, does, does my hairdresser know I'm a Christian? Mine does because it's me, but does your hairdresser know you're a Christian? Do, do your coworkers know that you love Jesus Christ? Do your neighbors know why you're gone on Sunday mornings? Do your children and your grandchildren know that your greatest treasure and love in this world is Jesus Christ, your Savior, the one who will be your judge and the one who you will enjoy for eternity because 
He has loved us first. God is building for himself a kingdom. And it's not all that it one day will be when Jesus returns. But we as kingdom citizens are to live in this world as ambassadors who faithfully represent and diligently labor for his purposes and by his power. And we do this, as we've learned this morning, by being exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is. By being wholly devoted to loving God with all that we are. And by diligently participating in spiritual formation, both of our own soul and those whom God has given us the privilege to influence. May God help us with such a tall order as this. He is willing and he is able. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your amazing grace today, your love for us, your goodness to us. Lord God, that you would give us commands that are good that we might fear you and it might go well with us. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning that is light in a dark place. Thank you for your spirit, Lord, that gives us the affections, the desires, the insight to know and love you and serve you and have the boldness to make you known everywhere, all the time. I thank you for Crossway Fellowship, a church that you have placed here to be a light for your glory. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for loving us first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.